Let us open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and this morning we will be in verses 18 through 20. Let us hear the reading of God's word, Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. But I will begin in verse 14 for context. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let us pray to the Lord. Father, this morning we do not want to, and I do not want to rely upon the arm of the flesh. And I do not want our confidence to be upon human wisdom. But Father, I pray that you will draw our hearts to your strength and to the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Father, as always, we pray that you will save the lost, that you will sanctify the saints, and that you will exalt the name of your Son. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the central theme of these verses can hardly be missed. Clearly, the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention this morning to the all-important but often neglected subject of, you know it, prayer, prayer. This is how the great apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brought his instruction on the armor of God and spiritual warfare to a close. And I have been touching on the specific subject of prayer in almost all my sermons in the last several weeks. In fact, I made the specific point that prayer is always the point of application. And we see this connection quite clearly by looking at how Paul connected verse 17 and verse 18. Consider that with me. In verse 17, he ends with a reference to the spirit as the wielder of the sword. And then he begins verse 18 with a reference to the spirit as the one in whom we are to pray. In other words, you could take all the pieces of the armor and read them in connection to verse 18. It would sound something like this. Put on the belt of truth, praying at all times. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, praying at all times. Put on the shoes of the gospel of peace, praying at all times. You get the pattern. It is all connected to prayer. As we can conclude that prayer in the spirit at a basic level is the divinely appointed means by which 
we can appropriate the armor of God as we engage in spiritual battle against forces of evil. And I say that prayer is what brings everything together because, as I mentioned last Sunday, without prayer, we cannot be effective in our battle against Satan. You cannot be strong apart from recognizing weakness expressed through prayer, and you cannot stand firm apart from falling on your knees in prayer. So as you can see, the two main calls in this entire section, namely be strong and stand firm cannot be obeyed without a sense of utter dependence on the spirit. It is an impossibility. Therefore, at a basic level, I must point out the following truth. Our spiritual strength and our ability to stand firm in spiritual warfare are in a very real sense proportional to our prayer life. Prayer in the spirit is therefore a non-negotiable of Christianity. We cannot be strong without it. We cannot stand firm apart from it. Moreover, let me just remind you that there is nothing abstract or impractical about this. The opposite is the case. You cannot get any more practical than this. So let me ask you, do you pray? Do you pray? Now that's a practical question. If I ever heard one, do you pray? Now notice please what I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you if you've ever read good books on prayer. That is good. And I commend you for that. I'm not asking you if you understand the intricate theological foundations of prayer. That is also good, but that's not what I'm asking. Neither am I asking you if you like to talk about prayer. The question rather is, do you pray? Are you a man or a woman of prayer? Can I be honest with you? One of the, the popular expressions in evangelicalism that I think is unfortunate is the little expression prayer warrior. Now, if you use that expression, I'm not taking shots at you. Okay. It's fine. All I'm saying is that I no, no longer understand that expression, at least not in light of Ephesians 6, 18, which begins with these simple words, praying at all times. That settles it for me. When Paul said those words, he was not speaking to the praying elites or the prayer warriors of the Ephesian churches. Those words were addressed to everyone who names the name of the Lord. So I ask you again, do you pray? Are you a man or a woman of prayer? Now, with that profound question ringing in the back of your mind, let us take a deep dive into these wonderful and powerful verses. Let me read them to us, to you again. Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. First, I want you, I want you to jump with me to the very first book of the Bible. And here's the first point, the first consideration for this morning is the ancient background, the ancient background. We're going to go deep this morning, and I hope that you stay with me, that you think with me, that you stay engaged with me, okay? Don't take a nap just yet, all right? Since the very beginning of time, God's purpose has been to expand his rule and presence in the world, Listen to what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1:28. Listen to these words. Be fruitful and what? Multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, the bad news is that Adam and Eve, of course, we know they failed it due to their sin. They became self-absorbed and forgot that their purpose was to spread the glory of God on earth, not their own. So after destroying humanity through the flood, the same worldwide mandate is then given to Noah in Genesis chapter nine, verse one, to whom God said, what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, if you know the story, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Out of Shem came Terah, right? Are you following? Out of Terah came who? Abram, Abram, remember it without an H, came Abram, and to Abram, God said in Genesis 12, and I will make you a great nation and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, and I will make you exceedingly, what? Fruitful, fruitful. Once again, we see the original worldwide mandate embedded in the Abrahamic blessing. And then toward the end of Genesis in chapter 47, verse 27, we read that Israel settled in the land of Egypt and were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. Do you see a pattern do you see a theme? Here's the theme in one word, expansion, expansion. God desires to expand his presence and the knowledge of his glory in the world through the lives of his people. Is that clear? Now at this point, allow me to start connecting the dots with Ephesians 6, 18. Gonna get, it's going to take a, a while to get there, but follow me. Central, central 
to this worldwide commission was the construction of the tabernacle and the subsequent temple. Now, why the temple? According to New Testament scholar G.K. Beale, follow this. This is very important. The Old Testament temple was designed to be a scaled-down version of the whole cosmos. Consider this. Solomon built the temple in how many years? Seven. Seven years. He dedicated the temple on the seventh month. During the Feast of Booth, which lasted how many days? Are you seeing a pattern? And Solomon issued a prayer with how many petitions? Come on, you know it. It's not six, it's not eight. It's right in between. Seven petitions. Why so many sevens? Beale says that this is evidence to show that this temple was representative of the creation of the world, and it is meant to be a miniature version of the whole cosmos. The temple was a physical reminder to Israel of God's purpose to spread his glory on earth. What does any of this have to do with our mandate to pray in the spirit? Now follow, please follow closely with your mind, stay engaged. In order to answer this, I need you to show you a very profound insight from the same biblical scholar, G.K. Beale, whom I, by the way, commend to you. But for this, I need you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 26. You do not want to miss this. And my brothers and sisters, uh, I promise you, we are heading toward Ephesians 6. Okay, second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 26. I'll read it first and then I'll offer some comments. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Consider these words. The Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now, did you memorize those words? At least, did you pay attention? Now, the words, these words spoken were spoken during Israel's exile. But here's G.K. Beale's profound insight. Please follow along. In this book, I'm sorry, in his book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, which is truly a masterful treatment on biblical theology, Beale pointed out that in the Hebrew Old Testament, 2 Chronicles is the last book. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the book of 2 Chronicles is the very last book. Therefore, chapter 36, verse 26, is the very last verse in the Hebrew canon, which is quite astonishing. Can you see why this is astonishing? If you can't see why this is astonishing, let me see if I can show you why this is astonishing. As we just read in the book of 2 Chronicles, the last 
words recorded in the last chapter and the last verse in the Hebrew Old Testament have to do with a king being used by God for the reconstruction of what? The temple. I need you to notice three specific elements in the words of King Cyrus. Number one, Cyrus says that God has given him all the kingdoms of the world. Number two, he is tasked with the building of a temple to the Lord God. And number three, he issues a type of benediction. May God be with him. Those are the last words in the Hebrew Old Testament. A king making three incredible statements. A claim of absolute authority over all kingdoms. A command to go and build God a temple. And a benediction proclaiming the presence of God. Do you see where I'm going with this? Probably not. So let me show you. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you. What do we read at the very end of the first book of our New Testament? Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew Chapter 28. We're getting closer to Ephesians 6. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, 19, and 20. You know this, this section of the Bible? Consider this. And Jesus came and said to them, what did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amazing, isn't it? Are you seeing it now? In Matthew, we find another king making three incredible statements, a claim of absolute authority, a command to go and make disciples, which reminds us of Genesis 1:28, be fruitful and multiply, and a benediction in which he promises to be with them. And then we're getting closer to Ephesians. In Acts chapter 1, we find the same resurrected Lord, King Jesus, speaking these words to his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the Holy Spirit will descend and you will be fruitful and you will multiply. And all the earth will know me. The knowledge of my glory will expand over all the earth through the ministry of the spirit. What is that ministry? Do not miss this. Now we finally get to the book of Ephesians, where in chapter 2, verse 19 through 20, we read this. So then you are no longer strangers, says Paul, or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? The household of God built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy what? A holy what? Temple grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By whom? By the Spirit. In case you are not seeing what I'm trying to show you, here it is. What Adam and Israel failed to do, namely spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord throughout the whole world, Christ has and is accomplishing by the Spirit through the church. Therefore, in his kingly declaration in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, which we know as the Great Commission, when the Lord Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, in essence, he's saying this, go and continue to build a worldwide temple for the Lord in which the presence of the Spirit will dwell. That, my friends, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this explains why praying at all times in the spirit means this, my brothers and sisters, is nothing less than temple language, temple language by his Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is building the true temple of God, namely the church where we can be finally be filled with all the fullness of God. This Old Testament background opens the door to Paul's command to pray at all times in the spirit. How so? Well, this leads us to our second major consideration, the proper meaning, the proper meaning. Think with me for a moment. What does this Old Testament background have to do with our command to pray at all times in the spirit? It boils down to this. Please don't miss it. I've said that like three times, different points. It's all important, my friends. Don't miss this. In the well-known story of Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem, after seeing all the people using it for business purposes, what was the specific cause of his anger? Well, what was the reason he overturned the tables and drove them all out in righteous anger? The specific cause was this. It is written, my house shall be called a what? A house of prayer. A house of what? A house of prayer, but you make it a den of rubbers. This was a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 56, verse seven. My house said the Lord Jesus will be called a house of prayer. You see what moved Jesus to drive all those people out of the temple was the fact that the temple was to be a place where God and man would have communion through prayer, not for business. This opens up before our very eyes, the meaning of Ephesians six eighteen. Consider what Paul said, praying at all times in the spirit. Here are three questions we can now answer. Three questions. First, why should Christians pray? Why should Christians pray? 
because we are the end times temple of God. In which his presence dwells by the Holy Spirit. And the temple is to be called a house of what? A prayer. If we are the temple of the spirit, then our lives should be characterized by prayer because this is the very purpose of the temple. It is to be a house of prayer. Second, why should Christians pray at all times? Well, since we are the temple, we are never outside of God's presence, but we live in his presence. You and I don't go to the temple. Rather, we are the temple. Therefore, you can't go outside of the temple. This is well expressed in a Latin phrase, codum Deo. Have you heard of that expression? Codum Deo. That little phrase sums up the reality behind our call to pray at all times. What does Coram Deo means? It means before the face of God or in the presence of God. Since we are the temple of the spirit, we Christians live our lives, Coram Deo, always in the presence of God. Shockingly, we go from being dead in our trespasses and sins without God in the world to being made a dwelling place for God in which we are invited to never ending communion with our father through Jesus Christ by the spirit. And third, why should Christians pray at all times in the spirit? Because the spirit's presence is what makes us stones in the spiritual temple of God. He's the one who joins us to the body of Christ by faith. You see, therefore, that the main questions regarding prayer in the Christian life have to do with our identity as members of the body of Christ. Or as Paul said in Ephesians 2.22, prayer has to do with the fact that by the spirit, we are being built into a dwelling place for God. And this is the theological force behind our call to pray at all times in the spirit. Prayer is an issue of our spiritual identity in Christ. We are the temple of God. The meaning then of praying at all times in the spirit is this. We must engage in ongoing communion with God for this is consistent with our new identity as members of the body of Christ, which is the dwelling place for God by the spirit. Now with that ancient background, and the proper meaning fresh in our minds, we are in a position to move into our next consideration. In fact, let me point out that the background and the meaning I just provided are necessary for us to understand why Paul says what he says in the next verses. The ancient background, along with the proper meaning, give us a window into Paul's specific requests, which is our third point of consideration, the specific request. After making a general appeal to prayer at all times in the spirit, Paul goes into specific prayer requests and they are essentially two. What are the prayer requests? Pray at all, pray for all the saints and pray also for the bold proclamation of the gospel. If praying at all times in the spirit is a reference to our new identity as the end times temple of God, in constant communion with him, then Paul's specific requests also have to do with this reality. What do I mean by this? Well, remember what I said at the beginning regarding God's central purpose, 
since the creation of Adam and Eve. I said that that purpose has always been to spread or to expand the knowledge of the glory of God upon the earth. I also said that Christ has accomplished and is accomplishing this purpose by the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he draws people into the body of Christ and builds them into a dwelling place for God. Correct? I've said that much. Paul's specific prayer requests are therefore an extension of this main idea. Why do we need to pray for all the saints? We pray for all the saints because the temple of God is worldwide. The temple of the Lord reaches into every nation, every tongue, every tribe, because the church continues to grow and expand. Therefore, when we pray for all the saints around the world, we are participating in the ongoing temple expansion project that the Lord Jesus has already started in his resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit. As the church of Christ expands and grows, so does the knowledge of the glory of God in the world. Now, I will say a little more uh, about that in my next point. But consider also Paul's second specific request. What was his second uh, specific request? Boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. Why did Paul ask for that? Here's the answer. Consider this. Follow me. The proclamation of the gospel The proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the means by which the spirit of God builds the worldwide temple of God as more and more people are added to the body of Christ through faith in the gospel message. Or think of it this way. Through the bold proclamation of the gospel, we expand the temple of God into the ends of the earth. But let's go a little deeper. Consider this. The temple in the Old Testament was the meeting place between God and man. Because in the temple, sacrifices were made. The temple represented the need for forgiveness and reconciliation between God and man. The temple was the meeting place, correct? But now, according to the New Testament, even though the need for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation, they have not changed. The meeting place is a different one. The meeting place is no longer a physical structure, but a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. The meeting place where forgiveness of sins is granted. And reconciliation between God and man accomplished is Jesus Christ. He is now the meeting place place between God and man. The only place where a sinner can meet with God and be forgiven and reconciled is Jesus, the son of God. Therefore, when we boldly proclaim the gospel, we are expanding as it were the meeting place between God and man. In essence, when we preach the gospel, this is what we're telling men. Come into the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, and meet with God in peace. Christ died on the cross for our sins, and in him we are reconciled to God. Come in. Come in and meet with God in peace. Jesus is the meeting place. In Christ, you can be forgiven 
of your sins. In Christ, you can be reconciled to God. So when we boldly preach the gospel to the world, meaning Christ and him crucified, we are saying you no longer need to go to Jerusalem into the temple to meet with God. We are bringing the temple to you. We are bringing the meeting place to you. His name is Jesus. Will you believe in him and so be forgiven and reconciled to God? So we need to pray at all times in the spirit because it is the spirit, the one who brings people in and joins them to Christ. This leads us to our final consideration for this morning, which is the practical lessons, practical lessons. Now I can begin the sermon. You think I'm kidding? <laughs> she said, I hope he's kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. The practical lessons. I have a few for us to consider. Prayer in the spirit is first of all, fellowship with God. Prayer in the spirit is fellowship with God. Of all the blessings granted to you in Christ, none reaches highest in terms of privilege than prayer in the spirit for prayer in the spirit is an invitation to fellowship with God. Since in Christ, we are the temple of God filled with the spirit. Then prayer is the outflow of our priestly role. It is the outflow of our priestly role. Consider with me in the book of Ephesians chapter two, verse 18. I want you to consider this because it is important as we think of prayer. It explains, in essence, the purpose of prayer. Ephesians 2.18, for through him, meaning Christ, for through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Prayer in the spirit is about access, communion, fellowship with the Father. So let me ask you again. Do you pray? Do you know how important that question is? Do you realize how weighty that question is? Let me try to put it in, in, in a different form. If you don't pray today, if you don't pray, what makes you think you will want to be in fellowship with God for all eternity? If you are not a praying person today, if you have no need for prayer, no interest in prayer, it's boring to you. You have no time for it. What makes you think that you will want to spend all eternity in fellowship with God? Don't kid yourself. If you, if you don't see a need for prayer, be very careful. For fellowship, prayer is fellowship. With the father prayer. Number two is in the spirit is truth applied truth applied. We should never see prayer as an activity that is detached from truth. After all, the word of God is the sword of whom of the spirit. Therefore praying in the spirit is always and only to be done in conjunction with biblical truth. Praying in the spirit is not about speaking gibberish. 
as some denominations would have us believe. Rather, praying in the Spirit is about learning to commune with the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, guided by the truth as revealed in Scripture. Thus, prayer in the Spirit is truth-empowered communion with God. Truth-empowered communion with God. Number three, prayer in the Spirit is mental vigilance. Paul said, keep alert with all perseverance. When it comes to prayer and spiritual battle, William Gurnall said this, and I quote, other soldiers fight with men that need sleep as well as themselves. But the Christian's grand enemy, Satan, is ever awake and walking his rounds, seeking whom he may surprise. And if Satan be always awake, it is dangerous for the Christian at any time to be spiritually asleep and careless, end quote. And then Gurnall adds the following, and I quote, the saints sleeping time is Satan's tempting time, end quote. My Christian brother and sister, I have said this before. Don't ever let your thoughts wander off. Keep alert with all perseverance. Take responsibility over your thoughts always. This is in part what it means to pray in the spirit at all times. Number four, prayer in the spirit is universal awareness. Universal awareness. Paul says, making supplication for all the saints. As I have tried to prove with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the physical has given way to the spiritual, meaning the Spirit came to build not a physical temple, but a spiritual one, not made with human hands. And this temple is worldwide called the church. Because of the Spirit, this spiritual temple knows no geographical boundaries. And it is not confined to one specific location. And through this temple called the church, the knowledge of the glory of God is being spread throughout the world in the power of the spirit. The church, as I said, is the end times temple of God. The temple of God was meant to be expanded, meaning God's glory was to fill the earth. And since we are the temple of God on earth, meaning the church indwelt by the spirit, the mission to expand the temple still continues. Prayer in the spirit is what links us to God's mission of spreading and expanding his glory throughout all the earth as we lift up the saints around the world. And brothers and sisters, this is not only our privilege, but also our responsibility. Prayer in the spirit is an invitation to participate in the worldwide expansion of God's temple, meaning the church. This is why every second Sunday of the month, we bring to your attention our missionaries why? So that you will pray for them as they take the gospel to the ends of the earth and as they participate in the expansion of God's temple around the world. So you must pray for all the saints. Number five, prayer in the spirit is recognition of weakness. Prayer in the spirit is recognition of weakness. Consider what Paul asked for. He said, pray also for me. Paul said this, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Have you ever stopped to consider the significance of the fact that the apostle Paul, this seemingly fearless man asked specifically for boldness in preaching the gospel? Why do you think he did? I think he did because he was just like a man. He was just a man like us. And I think the apostle Paul was prone to the fear of man. Honestly, 
I don't think the Apostle Paul was an impressive man. But I can guarantee you this, his prayer life was probably impressive because he knew that his weakness was impressive. But this should not surprise us. Be strong, says Paul, but in the Lord. In other words, without the strength of Christ, you are weak and you are prone to be a coward. The apostle Paul was not a great man of God. Rather, he was a weak man who served a great God. Therefore, Paul was fine, was fine with being weak. Moreover, Paul recognized his weakness in that he was convinced that it is the spirit alone who gives success to his word as it is proclaimed throughout the world. This is why we must pray. We must pray because through prayer, the Lord is pleased to grant his word efficacy in the salvation of sinners and the spread of his kingdom. One day, a man visited a church for a few days. This happened a long time ago. After his visit, he is recorded as saying that the most impressive thing about this church was not the preaching. Now, that is quite the statement, considering that the preacher was Charles Spurgeon. This man said the most impressive thing about this church was the church's commitment to prayer. He said that their prayer meetings were just as full as their regular service. In fact, when Charles Spurgeon was asked what was the, the secret of the success of his ministry, he replied, he replied this, my people pray for me. That's it. Not about his gifting, not about his ability as a preacher. My people pray for me. Can I tell you something about you? Your prayer life says more about you than your reading life. Reading good books is one thing. Do you pray? Do you pray? And finally, prayer in the spirit is submission to God's purposes. Paul said, pray for me that I may boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Notice how even in his personal request for boldness in preaching, Paul's thoughts were consumed with the glory of the gospel as revealed in Jesus Christ. Paul wanted boldness, not for the sake of boldness or to have a reputation for boldness, but only for the sake of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the world. Paul was driven by Christ and his gospel, even in his prayer, not by personal ambition. In this regard, the Puritans are an example to us. They understood the purpose of prayer to be conformity of our wills to God's, not God's will to ours. In the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers, one particular prayer says this, Lord, give me a heart frameable to your will. Let me know that the work of prayer is to conform my will to yours. And that without this, it is folly to pray. The more we pray, the more we will see God and his purposes as primary. And these will eventually become the driving force of our prayers. Now, let me finish by drawing your attention to the book of revelation. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read to you revelation 21 verses one and three. The apostle John said this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. One day, the temple of God will be all of creation, both heaven and earth, when the Lord remakes them. For this we long, we long to see the Lord make the new heavens and the new earth. But in the meantime, what do we do? Can you guess? In the meantime, let us pray at all times in the spirit and spread the presence of God to all the earth until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let us pray. Our father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of your word. I pray that you will take what has been spoken here today. Even though it was, as I am painfully aware, a, a very imperfect presentation of your word, your word nonetheless is perfect. And it is a sword that cuts away through the remaining sin in our life and the darkness in the world. Father, move us. Move us, we pray, into a greater sense of our own insufficiency and the urgency of prayer. For through prayer, we know that we are participating in the original mandate of spreading the knowledge of your glory around the world. To that end, we prayed for our missionaries who are at this very moment sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and inviting men and women, boys and girls to be forgiven of their sins and to be reconciled to you through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the spirit. And we pray Lord that you will continue to manifest your glory, both here locally and around the world and lead us Lord into a greater sense of our need of you. So make us a people of prayer so that the presence of the spirit may go forth in all places. And this we pray in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.